0: Would you join me in just giving attention to the scripture this this morning before you're seated? Um, Our scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses one through two. The word of God to you today. Paul writes, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable, this is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect the word of God to you today. You can be seated, thank you. Good morning, New City. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at New City and we're so grateful to have you worshiping with us. If you're visiting with us today, a special welcome to you. And I do hope this won't be your last time here. Please know that you are most welcome in this place and we're so glad to have you. We're continuing in a teaching series that we started last week entitled, Train Station, uh, The Power of Your Thought Life. And the metaphor, just to reintroduce it, is that our brains uh, physically are this train station that God gave to us as a gift. And that every one of the thoughts that is entering into our brains and departing uh, from our brains, our train station has a important destination Uh, And Paul talked about the power of our thoughts all throughout the New Testament. We're going to get into another passage today that you just heard that Paul wrote to the church at Rome about the power of our thoughts. And he talks specifically about the battle that is raging in the spiritual realm over your thoughts. Uh, Because both God and our enemy, the devil, know the power of our thoughts and the power of originating with our train station, our brains, the, the, the trains coming into and, and departing. In fact, Winston Churchill, after the Second World War, said this, I think prophetically, that the empires of the future will be the empires of the mind. Uh, he went on to say that primarily, the wars of the world will be wars of ideas and not wars of bombs the power of our thoughts. I want to talk today specifically to use our metaphor about train wrecks. If we think about our brain and our thought life as a train station, with these thoughts coming into our brains and departing and each of them taking us to a place, that when we have wrong thinking or we believe falsehoods or lies, they result in all kinds of train wrecks. And the further, I want you to hear this, the further that the train gets from the station, from our brain, the less control we have over it. And the more destructive it can become, not only to yourself, but to other people. You know, it doesn't take long for us to believe a lie. It doesn't take long for us to believe our own lies. Let me share with you a study that was done in 2018 by a group of researchers with a control group of 100 people of all different ages. They were brought into a room and given a simple 100-question exam. And the exam was very simple working memory recall. It was true and false. You didn't need to study for it. It was questions like true or false. Did you hit the snooze button this morning? True or false. Did you brush your teeth or not? Things like that. And the researchers asked this group of people just like us to intentionally lie on 50 of the questions. And they monitored the brain activity of all the participants as they knowingly lied. Then it gets even more interesting, 45 minutes after the exam, they called the same group of people back into the room and gave them the same exam. Did you hit the snooze button this morning, true or false? Did you brush your teeth this morning, true or false? And they asked them to answer truthfully. And guess what happened? People couldn't remember what was true and what was a lie. And specifically, and by the way, do you think it's gotten better since 2018? And specifically, right, the working memory of our brains was distorted because of the lies, People couldn't remember what was true. To use our metaphor, the lie had begun to lay down a train track, a neuro pathway in their brain, so just 45 minutes later when they were asked to tell the truth, they couldn't remember it. And moreover, what the researchers found neurologically is that a lie, just one lie, begins to wreck your brain, It distorts your brain. We'll get more into this uh, next week as we talk about neuropathways and what we're learning now in mapping the brain and the effect of distortion and falsehood physically on your train station to where you can't begin to decipher between the truth and a lie ideas, deceptive ideas and true ones, create mental maps in our brains that we begin to operate by. So what does this mean? When I tell a lie, even 45 minutes later, I have a difficult time uh, differentiating between what was true and what what was false. And moreover, it creates a train track so that the next time it's easier for me to lie. My brain already has a train track laid down by that deceptive lie and falsehood that I've believed the first time. Do you remember Brian Williams? Brian Williams was the lead anchor of NBC at the top of his profession, but he told a lie. He was reporting in Iraq during the war, and he talked about his convoy that he was traveling with coming under attack. Do you remember this? And he told the lie the first time, but then it built, and it built. And years later, as he was unpacking that, he talked about the fact that he couldn't remember what was true and not true. Even when people traveling in his convoy said, Brian, that never happened, we never came under fire. We never had to have a hard landing. That never happened. He had a difficult time differentiating between what was true and what was false. And now we know by brain mapping that that's true, that a lie creates a train track and it's easier to begin to lie the next time. And then your working memory starts to get distorted between what really happened. Does that resonate with you? Have you ever told a lie and then you just builds on it? And then it's hard to begin to to differentiate between now what part of that wasn't true and what really happened. It helps us to understand very vividly why Satan, the enemy of our hearts, the enemy of our souls, is known as the father of lies. He's the originator of lies. Uh, Jesus went on to tell the Pharisees, your father is Satan, and he lies, and everything you say is a lie. Nothing true can come out of his mouth. And his primary target, by the way, everyone listen to this, the enemy's primary target with his deceptive thinking and falsehoods that he tells us is our trust in God. If you're taking notes, I just want to invite you to maybe jot that down. The primary bullseye of the enemy to distort your thinking, to impart falsehoods and lies to you, is your trust in God, your belief and your trust and your faith in God. And he begins primarily that assault on our minds. But he plants doubts in our our minds, uh, causing us to question what was really true. What did God really say? Okay, don't take my word for it. Go back to the original lie. Genesis chapter three with the first couple, Adam and Eve. Uh, Satan says to Eve, not, uh, hey, God didn't say that. He doesn't come straight away and say, you know, what God said wasn't true. What does he do? He says, did God really say? Is that really what happened? And he begins to plant a seed of doubt that erodes trust primarily in Adam and Eve's thinking about God and what is true and what is false. Why do we want to believe the lies that the enemy tells us? Let me go a little bit further and just a little bit more philosophical in terms of biblically understanding what is a lie and why are we so susceptible to believing these lies primarily and beginning in our thought life. Ignatius of Loyola said this, that sin is my unwillingness to trust what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So when we begin to dissect what a lie is, a lie or a temptation to believe a lie begins to erode trust by thinking that, you know, if you just trust God, if you follow God, if you do what God says, you, it won't result in your ultimate happiness. God surely can't make you happy. He can't fulfill all the desires of your heart and your mind. And when that begins to take root in our thinking— then the devil begins to get a stronghold or a foothold or a train track in our brains that he can begin to build this falsehood of, of, of this train of thinking, this line of thinking that, that leads us to destruction and train wrecks. Uh, let me show it a different way. If you're a, a visual person, kind of how this works in terms of why do we believe lies and, and how do they come into our, to our minds? Well, again, Satan is the father of lies and it begins with a deceptive thought. And so he comes into our thinking with a deceptive thought. To use our metaphor, a train comes into our train station. And maybe it'll happen this week for you where you go, where did that thought come from? You ever had that moment? What am I thinking? Where, Where did that come from? This, this rogue thought comes into my mind of I should do something or I shouldn't do something. And it's, it's, it's so outlandish. It, it begins to uh, take residence in our mind if we allow it to. And what it does is it plays secondly on our distorted desires. So in our brokenness and in that temptation to think that we'll never be happy— Uh, you know, just with God, that God certainly can't fulfill our every desire and our need, whatever that might be in your life. The devil and his deceptive thinking and lies begins with that. And then it plays on our flesh, our our distorted desires and our brokenness to think we can be our own God and we have to achieve our own happiness if we're ever going to have fulfillment in this life. And then the thirdly, it's normalized in a sinful, broken culture, So the devil, the father of lies, begins with a deceit, a falsehood. He attacks us in our brains, in our thoughts, with a deceptive thought. It takes resonance in our distorted desires, our brokenness, and our temptations to think that we can be our own God and achieve our own happiness apart from God. And then it's codified, if you will, or normalized and sometimes legislated in a sinful, broken uh, culture and society that glorifies said lie. So the devil's primary stratagem is on display here. Uh, He wants to drive the soul of society into chaos and into ruin by deceptive ideas and thinking. And they play on our distorted desires as broken people, and then they're normalized in a sinful society. Does this make sense? Can you see this at work and at play in our culture? So the way all temptation is, uh, the way to see all temptation is to see temptation as an appeal to you and to me to believe or accept a lie, a lie about who God is, about who you are, about who other people uh, are, to believe an untrue story about God, to believe an untrue story about yourself, to believe an untrue story about who other people are. Can you think of, just to take a quick time out? in this whole idea of train wrecks and uh, trains coming off the track because of our our ungodly, our sinful thinking. Can you think of something that you might be uh, contemplating that's rattling around in your brain right now that might be an untrue story about yourself? That might be an untrue story about God, about who God is? Something that you're thinking about or find yourself dwelling on or it keeps coming back to you, this train coming into your train station, that keeps reminding you or uh, uh, deceiving you about who other people are? Maybe coworkers, family members, neighbors that you'll pass in the grocery store today about how God sees them? This is how the enemy works. And the idea is this, is that disinformation or deceit, because the enemy is a deceiver, is at the heart of almost every problem we face. Every problem we face as an individual, collectively as a church, as a society, disinformation or deceit, wrong thinking, falsehood is at the heart of all of it. And we are easily deceived people, aren't we? We're easily deceived. We're bad lie detectors, unless you're a mom. Moms know, right? (laughs) Mama always knows. Dr. Timothy Levine, who's the, uh, the world's leading expert on deceit. He trains at the FBI and police all over the world his conclusion in his training about the seed and helping law enforcement to understand that is that even the most intelligent human beings are terrible lie detectors. John Mark Comer says it this way the exact nature of the lies changes from generation to generation, culture to culture, person to person, but they always run along the same lines or to use our metaphor the same train tracks. And here's the lines that they'd run on. Here's the train tracks, just to see it. You distance yourself from God. That's what the lie tells you. You can't be happy with God. God's ultimate end is not your happiness. So you gotta distance yourself from God. What did Adam and Eve do in the very first sin, the very first lie, deceptive thinking that came in, disinformation? I'm gonna hide from God. I've gotta distance myself from God. And I've gotta live out of a false story. And then I feel shame about what I believed and I distance myself even more. Surely God can't love me. And some of you come into the room today or you're watching right now and that's where you're at. Surely God couldn't accept me and love me after what I've done. So we distance ourselves from God. And then the next train track is that we do things on our own, right? We just do our own things. Uh, Our culture says it this way, you do you right? Just do your own thing. You do what you want to do to make yourself happy. I'll do what I want to do to make myself happy, and we'll all just kind of live happily ever after. How how is that working? So we distance ourselves from God. We do our own thing. And then thirdly, we redefine right and wrong, or good and evil, based on our own gut and desires, our own wrong thinking. And we can see this at work in our own lives. We can see this at work and the lives of other people that we love, we can certainly see it at work in our world. And this really is all together the primary strategy of the father of lies. And I wonder, just as you see it up there on the screens, how it hits you and where you might find yourself on this strategy. What's a deceptive lie that you might be believing? What's a distorted desire Something that you're living apart from God with that that lie is having um, power over your your thoughts and your life. And how do you see in your own culture and in the world we live in those desires and that deceit being lived out and normalized? I'll I'll, I'll give an example of this. I found myself not too long ago on Main Street USA in Orlando with friends, with 30,000 of my closest friends and we were watching fireworks and whatever and and singing songs. And here's one of the songs that I found myself singing along with. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. I am one with the wind and the sky. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) Let it go. The spirit of the world says, hey, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's what makes me free is when there's no morality. There's no right. There's no wrong. You do you, right? And I'll do me and everything will be fine. And how's that working for us? The truth is that it enslaves us, that we come and put shackles on ourselves by believing this, this deceitful idea that that takes resonance in my distorted view of reality and myself, who God is and who others are, and then it's normalized in colloquialisms and songs and in culture of this is what it means to be liberated and to be free, and it enslaves us. It ensnares us. The Bible says it this way. There's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to destruction. The first lie, as with the lie we might be believing or telling ourselves today, is a lie that begins with a thought or an idea about who God is, about who you are about who others might be. And again, the further that that lie, that train of thought gets from the train station from your brain, the harder it is to take it captive. Remember last week, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that we come against every argument that keeps people from the knowledge of Jesus. And then he said, secondly, we take captive all those rebellious thoughts, those distorted thoughts and lies, and we teach them to obey Jesus. So we're not a product of our thoughts in and of themselves. We actually have volition over our thoughts. And we'll get into that as we go into the series. There's a difference between your brain physically and the mind. The mind has a foot in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And the mind is the seat of direction and, and volition and of will. And what Paul says is that you can take your thoughts and begin to teach them to obey the truth of who Jesus is. But what we need to understand today when it comes to train wrecks and why they happen, it begins in our brain. And the further that train of thought, that lie gets from the train station, again, the less control you have over it and the more destructive it can become. We talked about last week that it begins with a thought that moves to a stored memory or a feeling. And then a word, we begin to verbalize that thought. We begin to act on those those false uh, thoughts and deceit it becomes a habit the more we do it in our life. I I begin to think I can't break free of this. It's a lifestyle which leads us to a destination of where we are. And God has a lot, dear friends, God has a lot to say about our thoughts. All throughout the scriptures, God talks about the power of our thoughts and his desire to to be involved and to give us strength and and power uh, to be able to think rightly about himself, about ourselves and about others. And Paul probably writes more than anybody else in the scriptures about the power of your thoughts. And I wanna take us back to the scripture we started with in the book of Romans, because it's probably his most complete work on the power of the gospel and the outflow of that in our thinking. And if you know the book of Romans, if you've studied it, Paul spends the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans talking about the power of the gospel, about what Jesus has done for us, And I just wanna take a second in the room to remind us what the gospel is. We hear that word gospel. The word gospel means good or good news. And what is the good news? That Jesus did for us, for you and for me, what we could not and would not do for ourselves. And that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, defeating death and the grave, Jesus has given to us his righteousness and taken upon himself our unrighteousness. He completed salvation fully for us, not 99% and then we gotta do the, the last 1%. Jesus fully did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the gospel, that's the good news. And in the first 11 chapters on his letter to the, book, or to the, to the church at Rome, Paul is unpacking this and talking about the power of the gospel. And then when he gets to chapter 12, the passage that we're looking at today, and, and, and beginning to unpack the implications of the gospel, specifically in our thoughts and our actions, uh, Paul begins to talk about how we live out the gospel in relationship and in our lives. And I just wanna look at the first two verses that I read to you when we began. Romans chapter 12, verses one through two. If you have a copy of that, please turn there. Let me reread it to you, and then I wanna share a few things uh, today about the power of your thoughts and what, what Paul says. He says, uh, and so dear brothers and sisters, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you Think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Okay, I just want, you don't have to answer out loud, but when you hear that, what phrase or word sticks out to you most about Romans 12, verses one and two? Some of you have read this before, you've studied it, for some of you, this is the first time you've heard it. What phrase sticks out to you the most from our passage? For many people, not for all, but for many people, it's this idea of presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is a wonderful teaching. But I want to propose to you that the most important word here, the primary word that you, that everything keys off of, is the first word or the first two words in the NLT, and so, or in some of your translations, it's rendered therefore. And whenever you see a therefore or a and so, you should ask yourself the question, what is it there for? Why did Paul use the word therefore? Why does he do it? Everyone watch this. Because he's keen off of the first 11 chapters. And he's just been busy unpacking the truth of the gospel that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that through the work of Jesus, God has fully accomplished salvation for you and for me. And now in chapters 12 through 16, he's gonna talk about the implications of that beginning with our thought life. And so he wants us to know that everything he's getting ready to write is a response to the gospel. Because if you're not responding to the gospel, you could quickly get into, this is one more thing for me to do. Oh, great. Now I've gotta give my body as a living and holy sacrifice to God. How do I give my body, my broken, distorted body, full of all kinds of things that I believe about myself, about God, about other people, how do I make that holy on my own? And this is the work of religion, don't you see? The religion says you've got to do something for God. You've gotta be perfect. And then you've gotta give yourself holy to God. and And then that will be a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice. But I want you to pay attention to those first two words, and so, or in some of your translations, therefore, and I want you to circle it today if you have it or highlight it on your phones. Because what Paul is saying is that everything we do, beginning with our thoughts, is a response to the gospel. It's not us initiating with God, it's what God has initiated with us through Jesus. And so everything that we do, including our thoughts, becomes a response to God's thinking about us and what he's done for us. And Paul wants to make that very clear. Uh, Look in the NLT, the way he says it is, I'm pleading with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. And that's the gospel. You know, people break down into a do or done when it comes to religion. Uh, It's either I've got to do these things for God, works, morality, behavior modification. Some people have turned Christianity If some of you are coming back to God, you're returning, you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. And some people culturally have turned following Jesus into a behavior modification program. That somehow it's just stay off drugs and do the right thing. That's what following Jesus is. And yeah, hopefully you will stay off drugs if you follow Jesus. But it's not you doing all these said things to prove your worth to God. Christianity is responding to what God has done for us. You've heard me say before, every other world religion, go study them. Every other world religion is, I've got to do something for God. And then hopefully he'll respond to me and what I've done. Christianity is, this is what God has done for me. While I was still a sinner, Paul says, Christ died for me. God demonstrated his love for me in that way. And now every part of Christian living, beginning with my thought life, is a response to the gospel and what Jesus has done for me. So I just wanna free you up today. If you hear that and you go, great, one more thing that I've gotta do to be loved by God, no. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, once you understand and you embrace the truth, of who God is in your mind and your heart, then it, it, it has implications in how you speak, how you think, how you live, and it's all response. And that's what worship is, by the way, guys. Worship is our response to God's revelation, to who God is, to how he's made himself known. And right, the peak, the apex of God's revelation to us, of how he's chosen to make himself known to us, was who? Jesus Jesus said, as you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that Jesus, God in flesh, dwelling among us, was the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. And now all of worship is a response to who Jesus is and what he's done for us, which is the gospel. And so Paul continues in this line of thinking, if you don't get anything else out of that the message, I hope you'll get that, that everything else, including your thought life, is a response to the gospel not a a list of rules and morality to keep to get God to love you, but because of God's great love for you, because of God's uh, demonstration of his love on the cross, this is our reasonable, in Paul's word as an attorney, logical response to what God has done. And he begins by saying you should give your bodies, right? What's a part of our body? Our brain, our train station. We should give it to God, Uh, Paul's probably remembering the teaching that he heard from Jesus through the disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Let me read it to you. Jesus says in verses 24 through 26, if any of you wants to be my follower, you don't need to raise your hand. But how many of you would say today, I want to follow Jesus? Our simple mission here as a church is to to help people find and follow Jesus. We want to find Jesus. We want to continue to follow him in every area of our lives, which I don't know about you, but that takes a lifetime, doesn't it? to continue to follow him in every single way in my life. Jesus says, if you wanna be my follower, you've gotta turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. And then he gets even more specific here in Matthew 16. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, how many of you feel like I'm hanging on to my life? If I try to hold on to my life, and just just make everything work and come together, he says, you're gonna lose it. It's gonna slip out of your hands. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? A great question from Jesus to our hearts today. And how do I lay down my own body? How do I deny myself? How do I give the Lord my thoughts? It's only because of what God's done for me. It's only because of the gospel and understanding more of who Jesus is and what he's done that I can give him my own body as he gave it to me. And then it becomes, look at the passage, this living and holy sacrifice. Not because I bring myself holy on my own works, that would go against the gospel. It's holy as I give myself as a response to what God's done for me. And it's living, and Paul's playing off of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that was implemented there. And our understanding, Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, that Jesus now has become our ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice for us. And you know, the trouble, Tim Keller says, with living sacrifices as a response is they'll get up off the altar and walk away. And so the implication is a living sacrifice is that it's a daily moment-by-moment choice in my thinking and my actions and my words to continue to put myself back up on the altar when I'm tempted to walk away and follow my sinful desires and thinking. And he says, you know, how do you do this? Look at verse 2. We're narrowing the focus now. He starts with a response to the gospel What is worship? It's giving my body as a living and holy sacrifice in response to what God's done for me. And now he's going to get even more specific. How do you do that? Or to use our language, how do you prevent train wrecks in your thinking? He says, well, don't copy, or in some of your translations, it's conform to what's happening on the outside, to the behaviors and the patterns of this world, It's so easy to be conformed, which, by the way, conformity always happens from the outside in, and it's easy to be conformed to the culture and the patterns and the behaviors of this world. Are you with me? So easy, and you don't have to try, do you, to be conformed. It doesn't require intentionality or discipline to be conformed to the patterns and the behaviors of this broken, distorted world. It happens naturally as we live in it. I've never had anyone in all my years as a pastor come to me and say, You know, I get up early in the morning because I want to make sure that I get my daily pornography viewing in. And I really don't want to, but a commitment is a commitment. And if I'm going to be someone who has a lower capacity for intimacy and a higher rate of infidelity, I've got to be disciplined. I've never heard that before. Doesn't happen conformity or being a copycat to the culture just happens by me not being intentional. I begin to be shaped and formed in the patterns of the world around me. And dear brothers and sisters, those of you who are followers of Jesus in the room and who are watching, the pathway of discipleship all the way back to Matthew chapter 16 is taking up my cross, dying to myself and following Jesus every single day. And that requires intentionality. Nobody took up a cross on their own without intentionality and purpose. That is the path of discipleship, of following Jesus in every way. And Paul offers an alternative to being conformed from the outside in. He says instead of being conformed or copying the patterns and the behaviors of this world, what does he say? Be transformed. Now, transformation happens from the inside out. Copying or conformity happens from the outside in but the work that jesus wants to do in our hearts and our minds begins within and then it begins to find you know its evidence in our thinking and our words and our feelings and our actions and our patterns of behavior and our habits and our lifestyles and our destinations that's how this works and so paul says let god begin to transform me i want you to pay attention to the words here he says let god transform you you don't transform yourselves God transforms you as you submit your mind and your heart to him. As you allow him to work, he does the work. Listen, God is much more committed to making you more like him than you are. And so whatever you offer to God as a sacrifice, whatever opening you'll give to the Holy Spirit, he'll take it. And he'll begin to transform you from the inside out. I want you to pay attention to the language here. He says, let God transform you into a new person, a new creation, by changing what? Your behavior, your words, your habits. Well, yeah, all those are gonna be changed, but what is, where does it begin? By changing the way you think. Let God transform you into a new person, the person you were created to be in Jesus, by the way that you think. And then this amazing promise as we close here. The promise of transformation, the promise of a renewed mind, a new way of thinking and understanding. look, Look at the promise here. Then, as God begins to transform your thinking, then you will learn to know. I love that little phrase, you'll learn to know. You'll learn to know God's will for you. How many of you wanna know God's will for you? then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is always good, and always pleasing, and always perfect. It turns out that God does have your happiness in mind. That his will for you is always pleasing, and good, and perfect. And by the way, this undoes, right? It's unraveling the lie, the original lie from the father of lies, Satan, to Adam and Eve, our ancestors, right? The original lie was your eyes are gonna be open, you're gonna know. The original premise of the first lie was that you're gonna receive knowledge. And now through Jesus, Paul says, yeah, as Jesus gets a hold of your body, and specifically your brain and your mind, you're gonna learn to know, you're gonna have knowledge, not to be more self-actualized or to live further into that lie and deceit, but to know God's will for your life, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let me give you a parting thought, a bottom line for this message. As we think about train wrecks and how to prevent them with renewed thinking, here's the choice that Paul offers here. You can conform, happens naturally, no intentionality, or you can be transformed as you intentionally, daily give your mind to Jesus. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for not giving up on us. I know I can speak for my friends here in the room and for those watching online, that it is a daily battle to give our minds to you. And so we ask for your grace, we ask for your strength and perseverance in our thought life. And I wanna pray for each of my friends today that our thoughts would be a response to the gospel of what you've done for us, Jesus. And that those thoughts would take evidence in our words, our our stored memories, our, our feelings, our actions, our habits, our lifestyles, that all of it would begin with what you've done for us. That it would be an act of grace and not of works that we would be a living and a holy sacrifice offered to you. And let it begin with us. Let it begin right here in our minds. Thank you for your amazing grace to us, Jesus. We praise you for it in Jesus' name.